Our scripture reading this morning is in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Again, that's Romans 4, 1 through 8. And I guess I should give you the number in your pew Bible. 941, it's the same as Pastor Bill's Bible, so I guess I can just use that. (laughs) So please uh, continue to worship with me as I read God's Word. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Troy. I was going to say something similar about the weather. Wasn't it cool this morning to wake up and hear birds chirping? Did you hear birds chirping? It's like, well, I was out with Christine the other day, and um, and we heard. Th- this is always my favorite part of of the end of winter. I heard the first seagull sound. It's like, oh, I heard one. Oh, it's good. Now, of course, midweek when it snows again, we'll uh, we'll forget all that. But it is good. God's good. I love spring. Um, one other thing I want to say before we transition into, uh, into prayer and, and the word here. Um, if you see Christine running around with a camera and taking photos, uh, she'll probably be doing that over the next couple of Sundays. And, uh, and the reason that's happening is because we are rolling out a new website this spring and we need some new pics. Um, there won't be massive pictures of all of you on the website, I promise, but we need some shots of just what the church is like on the website, so if you see her, know that that's why she's taking your photo, and don't run away, because we want you on there, don't worry, we won't single anybody out, I promise, but we need some, some body life shots, all right, all right, let's, uh, let's pray, let's ask God to bless our time in his word, Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is life to us, we thank you that it is living and active, we thank you that we have confidence that when we read this word and when we hear it proclaimed, that we're hearing you, that you love us and you speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us, and that you show us the greatness and the glory of who you are. You show us, Lord, the reality of who we are and the potential that you've given to us as image bearers and as redeemed ones in your son Jesus to be fully alive, fully human, and fully in relationship with you. God, it is, it's, it's our food. It's the most important food that we can come and eat is, is this thing called the Word of God. So we just thank you for it. And we ask you, Lord, that you, you would speak this morning, you would bless us, that you would nourish us, that you would encourage us. Lord, perhaps convict us and, 
and, and bring us uh, to see Jesus as the Savior that He is. Do all of this, Lord, for Your glory and for the good of the church, the good of those whom You love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series of, uh, of Romans. And uh, boy, you know, one of the things that, um, that I, I've been just struck with as I'm studying it week in and week out for sermons in, in, in the beginning parts of Romans, we're just beginning chapter 4 today, is, uh, is that it is just, um, it's the same message, really, over and over and over and over again. It's, it's taking this idea that, that we need Christ, that we're all sinners in need of the gospel, and, and then, and here's the gospel, and here's, here's what it is, here's how to believe it. It's, it's that we're made right by faith in Christ alone, not by what we've done or what we deserve. It's that same message over and over again. It's just looking at it in different angles. It's, it's sort of proving the argument out over and over again with, with different, uh, ways of stating it. And so, uh, that's good for us. We need, we need that repetition. We need that clarity. Uh, it's a challenge for me as a pastor to feel like I'm not preaching the same sermon week in and week out. But, uh, hey, it kind of is. I mean, like, that's the message again today. The sermon is going to be very much what we've been hearing all along. We are, we are made right before God because of Him and what He's done for us. And, uh, and that the title of this sermon is true, that salvation was never a reward for good behavior. It's, it's God's grace. It's God's favor given to undeserving people like you and me. And that's good news for people like you and me. So, uh, that's our, that's our topic this morning as we look into chapter four. What is, what is salvation? How do we get it? It, it, it really never was a reward for good behavior. That, that question, by the way, uh, really is the great religious debate. Uh, this question of, and, and, and when I say that, I mean it's the, the religious debate that's been going on for centuries. Are we justified by God, by faith, or by our good deeds, by our good works? Do, do we go to heaven because we're a good person? Because we obeyed God properly? Or are we saved by faith alone? That's the great religious debate, right? Have you ever had conversations with people around that question? How, how do we get to heaven? I watched uh, some interesting YouTube videos this week because I, I wanted to see if... I, I was certain that somebody's done sort of man-on-the-street interviews, and they have, they're on YouTube, walking around and just asking people that question, how do you go to heaven? What, is it, what, is it, what does it take to get there? And sure enough, the, the predominant answer over and over again was, well, I mean, I, I, you're a good enough person, I guess you get in. I think that's the thing that most people believe. When I was, uh, before I became a pastor, I, w- I worked in the finance industry and, and I had a, a coworker at the firm that I worked with who was a good friend of mine. Uh, we'd go to lunch all the time. He was Mormon. He loved to talk about religion. He loved it. He would pursue me relentlessly. Let's go to lunch. And he just always wanted to talk about religion. And, uh, and, and one of the things that was interesting in those conversations, we talked about the difference between his Mormon beliefs and my Christian beliefs. Was that he, he just couldn't get over the idea of a deathbed conversion. The, the, the idea that, that somebody could actually get saved on their deathbed if they'd lived a life completely selfishly, they were steeped in sin. You know, this idea that on their deathbed they could confess their sin and, and, and cry out for salvation in Christ. To him, that was just, 
just unfathomable. Because how, how could God let that person in? I mean, isn't life a test? And haven't they failed that test their whole life? It's just sort of like getting the answer key after you haven't studied all semester long, but you get the answer key right before you take the test and you can ace it. It just seems so unfair. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Life is a test. If you're going to get in, you're going to get in based on what you did or what kind of a person you are. It's the question that divides religions, right? How do you get in? How are we justified? And more accurately, I would say it's the question that separates Christianity from all other religions. Because Christianity has a very different view about that. We understand the validity of a deathbed conversion. We understand the validity of Jesus on the cross saying to the guy hanging on the cross next to him, who at that moment, up until that moment, had been a criminal deserving of capital punishment, but who recognized who Jesus was and confessed his own sin and said, remember me. And Jesus could say to him, you'll be with me today in paradise. What? It's amazing. That's, that's Christianity. That's the difference. right? And yet, still, we wrestle with that question, even within the Christian church, even with those who are professing Christians, as in Paul's day. That's why he's writing chapters 3 and 4, because even professing Christians, the Jewish believers primarily, uh, we're, we're, we're at odds with the Gentile believers on how this whole thing worked out. The Jewish believers were still saying, no, the law still matters. You gotta do it in order to be a Christian. And in more recent times, as, uh, you know, Chelsea alluded to earlier, uh, Catholics versus Protestants, they've divided over this question. Are we saved by what we do or by faith alone? Why is this such a, such a divisive issue. Why, why is there so much continued uh, belief to run back to this idea that we're saved by our works? I think it's probably because there's confusion about our roots. And I think that's what Paul's identifying. The, the, the problem in the Roman church with the Jewish believers who were saying, no, you still got to do something in order to be saved. He's saying, you've missed, you've forgotten our roots. You've forgotten where we came from. You think the law was the first thing that God ever gave to us. But he wants to challenge that. Is the law really the first thing that God gave to us? Or did the gospel come first? What came first? The chicken or the egg? Right? Don't put the cart before the horse, but what's the cart and what's the horse? Did the law come first or did the gospel come first? That's what Paul wants to talk to us about. And he's making the case that it's the gospel that came first. The gospel always was and is God's plan of salvation for mankind. Gospel precedes law. And to prove it, he says, let's go back and look at the beginning of this Jewish faith. Let's go back and look at the beginning of every faith. Let's go look at Abraham, the father of the faith. And this is what Troy just read for us. Let's look again at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So there's a little sarcasm here. Yeah, if Abraham, if he, if he was declared righteous, if he was the, if he is the father of our faith because of what he did, he'd have a lot to boast about, but no, not really, because in fact, before God, he has nothing to boast about. 
For what does the Scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages, excuse me, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These are important verses for us to understand. And basically, here's what he's saying. He's saying, do you understand this? God doesn't owe anybody anything. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He doesn't owe Abraham. And as we read a little bit further, as we get into verses 6-8, through he brings up David. God doesn't owe David. Paul would say, God doesn't owe me. And God doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe anyone anything. And this is a very powerful argument for Paul to make because again, if, if, if I'm a Jewish believer, I'm thinking if there's anybody who might warrant God's favor, it'd have to be Abraham, the father of the faith. Or David, the greatest king that we've ever known as a nation of Israel. I mean, this, this would be like saying to us today, look, uh, you know, what makes somebody American? Well, I mean, we could, we could go back and look at George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Let's look at those two things. They, if anything would tell us what's a great American, the guy who started it and, and perhaps the greatest president we've had, we'll look to them. If I want to know who's a, what, what makes somebody a basketball player, it's like, let's go look at Wilt Chamberlain and Michael Jordan. That's kind of what he's saying. If you want to know what makes somebody right before God, truly religious, let's go back and look at Abraham and David. They're the best, right? But what happens if we do that? If we look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which is what he's quoted here in verse 3. He says, what does the Scripture say? He's quoting Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What are we seeing of Abraham? Well, here's what we see. If, if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, what we find here is that this is where God makes the promise to Abraham and says, indeed, of you, I'm going to make many nations. I'm, of your line, I'm going to create a people for myself, essentially. And what Abraham is saying to God in Genesis chapter 15 is this. I don't have any kids. I don't have a son. And I'm married to a woman who's barren. We're not going to have a son, God. By the way, I'm pretty old. I'm almost 100. My wife, she's right behind me. So we're old. We're barren. It's too late. This isn't happening. In other words, it's Abraham saying to God, God, I have nothing to offer here. I have nothing to offer here. And yet God says, that's probably exactly why I'm coming to you. You have nothing to offer. I do. I'm the God of creation. I'm the God who does the impossible. And I'm telling you, you're going to have kids. Look up. Look at the stars. That's how many. It's an amazing thing, right? Here's a man who has nothing to offer. And yet, it's God's promise that God has something to offer that Abraham simply believes and that's counted to him as righteousness. But Abraham himself, 
No reason for God to owe him anything. He brought nothing to the table. We can look at David. Again, we get to verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes David's writings, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is Psalm 32, written by David. And so here's, I think, Paul making the argument. We can look at Abraham and say, Abraham had nothing to bring to the table. What about David? Did David have anything to bring to the table? When God chose David, what was David's, what were his circumstances? What did he look like? What did he bring? Well, we just studied this, if you recall, if you've been around here for a few months, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see David, when God comes to him and chooses him, he was the, he was the last brother, right? He was the youngest brother of Jesse. We see Samuel coming to Jesse's house and saying, God is, is, is led me here. God's chosen king for Israel is one of your boys. Bring all your boys together. Let's see him. Let's get them all in the same room. And what happens? They, Jesse brings all of his boys together except David. It's like David wasn't even on his mind. Like, he's the little guy. He's the short one. He's the young one. He's, it's not possible that it would be this guy. He's still out tending the sheep. We're not even thinking about inviting him into this conversation. And yet, Samuel goes down the line and God says, not him, not him, not him, not him. But finally he says, is there, is there some other boy that's not here? Oh, yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah, David. Oh, he's still out in the field. That little short, ruddy guy who had nothing to bring to the table. And yet God chose him. Right? Did God owe David anything in that moment? No. What about Paul? He's saying, let's look at Abraham. Let's look at David. Later, writing to the Philippian church, he says, how about looking at me? Philippians chapter 3, just listen, verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. So here's a, here's a slightly different angle. Abraham didn't have anything to offer. David didn't anything to have, have anything to offer. You know what? I, I kind of did. Listen to what I had to offer. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I kept the law. I knew the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What, what was the fruit of Paul's labor in all that he was and all that he had? When he could boast about all those things, it was at that moment that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, all this stuff you've done that you think would make me in your debt, would make God in your debt. In fact, God comes to you and says, no, you're my enemy. You've stood opposed to me this whole time. So here's the very simple point. God owes no one anything. Can I turn it on you this morning and ask, what do you have offer to God? Would you, would you want to just take a little quick mental inventory? 
What, what does God owe you? You're coming up a little short, I assume, as you should. That's the first point, right? God doesn't owe anybody anything. However, Abraham was justified by God. How? Because justification, second point, justification is something that's declared. Another way of saying that is God makes you righteous even though you really aren't. Justification is declared. Look again at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 3 introduces us to a very important word, this word counted. Okay, In the Greek, it's logizomai, and it actually appears 11 times in this chapter. This is a key word that Paul's bringing up in Romans 4. 11 times he says, logizomai, logizomai, logizomai. What is he talking about here? It was counted to him as righteousness. This word counted is an accounting term. Okay, It, is, it means this, it, it means to credit your account, to write in a positive value in your ledger. If you think of, of keeping books, financial books of your life, writing a positive amount into your ledger. But it's not a wage. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you, if you earned it by work, then it's not a gift. It's something that you rightfully have earned. But he says it's not that. This counted that God has counted for Abraham in righteousness is not earned. It is rather a status change. In other words, if, if God were to open up the ledger of your life, what have you to bring to the table? There's a zero in your ledger. Okay? However, by God declaring righteousness, your zero has been changed into a positive number. And in this sense, accounting for the righteousness of God, your zero balance has instantly become a gazillion billion dollars. Okay? It was a zero. You didn't do anything to earn a gazillion billion dollars, but God immediately declares a zillion billion dollars. That's what this means. How? Because God simply changed your status. He just did it. Abraham's faith, which was not a work in and of itself, but simply a belief in God's work. So in every way, his faith is a zero. right? It's nothing he did. It was credited or declared to be a zillion. Why? Because God simply decided to give his own righteousness to Abraham and to all who place their faith in him as a deposit into your account. Another way you could say it is that God decided to treat Abraham as though he had lived a righteous life, even though he had not done that, even though he was yet still ungodly. That's what verse 5 says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham was yet ungodly, but he believed that God could do something. And that belief was transformed 
into a credit. That's good news. Right? I'm not worthy of God's debt or God's favor, and yet God can just declare me righteous by His own good will. That's good news. And it means something gloriously wonderful for sinners like us. Here's kind of a sub-point. This, this idea of justification is something that's simply declared. It's that the faith that's exhibited is not a saving work either. It's just believing in God's saving work. Let's look at a big chunk of, of the passage here from verse 9 through verse 16. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it just for the Jew or is it for the Gentile? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the Gentile, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jew, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I know that there's a lot of kind of compacted verbiage there, but but basically saying, look, it, it wasn't, that Abraham was circumcised, that he obeyed the law, it was the faith. And it was simply the faith so that he would be the father of anybody who exhibits that same faith. It's not just that he's the father of the Jews, but he's the father of, the, of true Israel, if you will, those who have faith. It's not what you do. It's not that you got circumcised. It's that you have faith. For the promise, verse 13, to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See, here's what Paul's getting at. Paul was trained up as a Pharisee. He was trained up by rabbis. And of course, rabbis were the teachers of the Jews. And rabbis taught that Abraham was justified before God, that he was, that he was sort of saved, if you will, that he was He was declared right by God um, because he kept the law even though the law hadn't been given yet. Moses wasn't going to come for a long time. And the Mosaic law didn't come till then. But, But the rabbis taught that Abraham was first and was justified because even though the law hadn't come, he kept it. And the way that they proved that was they would look to Genesis chapter 17 when Abraham took the covenant of circumcision. Say, see, circumcision was part of the law. And he already, and he did it even though the law hadn't been given yet. He kept the law before it was given. He was counted righteous because of that. And Paul's saying that's not true. 
He's saying, no, he was actually counted righteous before he got circumcised, before Genesis 17. God said this in Genesis 15, when all Abraham did was believe the gospel promise of God. So, again, this is heady. Let me simplify it. Paul's saying this, don't mistake the sign of the covenant for the covenant itself. And we can relate to this, I think, in the modern church with something like baptism. Circumcision isn't a part of our religious practice as Christians, but baptism is, right? And, and here's what we can often do with baptism. We can view baptism as a saving act in and of itself. And in fact, some denominations of the Christian church do that. Which is why, you know, it's so important if, if a baby's born or if somebody's on their deathbed, sometimes like, get the priest in here and get them baptized right away. If they're not baptized, they're not washed. Right? Anybody ever come from that tradition? Anybody ever had a family member say to you, you gotta get them baptized? Right? Why? Because again, it's this, it's this idea that it's the act of baptism in and of itself that cleanses. Paul's saying, no, don't mistake the sign of the covenant for the covenant. That's not what makes you saved. What makes you saved is the faith to believe that God has taken your sin and nailed it to Jesus on the cross, that He's resurrected to overcome sin and death. And baptism is just a sign. It's just an outward expression that's, that, that sort of shows to the world that you've believed. You're identifying with that belief in the death and resurrection, in the, the dunking and the rising out of the water. It's a sign of a covenant that's already taken place. You got saved when you believed, not when you got baptized. Don't mix up the sign for the covenant itself. So what's the point? The point is that it's the grace of God that saves. And faith, your faith is the belief in the validity of God's promise to say to you, I can save you from your sin. Not that you can save you from your sin. I'll do it. I'll send my son. He'll die the death you deserve. He'll bear my wrath for your sin. I'll do it. You just got to believe the validity of my promise. Faith itself is not the saving work. Just as baptism or circumcision is not the saving work. Faith is simply believing in God's saving work for you. It's a transfer of trust. That's what faith is. It's saying, I no longer trust in the things that I can do to earn God's favor. I am transferring all that trust onto Him. I'm just believing He's capable. And He'll do it. He'll fulfill it. That's what faith is. It is a transfer of trust. Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference? It's, it's, it's an interesting concept, this idea of faith. Your faith is necessary for your salvation, but it doesn't actually earn it because it's not a work. It's just believing in His work. We have to understand that. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand through this chapter. Now, what Paul's going to do now is launch into the nature of that saving work. But before we get there, I want to go back and highlight one more important nugget of truth from Paul's argument here, because I think some of us desperately need to hear it this morning. This might be exactly why God brought you to church today. Go back to verse 7 and 8. Again, this is David's uh, Psalm 32. 
Verse 6, he says, again, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from their works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And here's the, here's the little nugget I want you to hear this morning. Because it's God's work that saves you and not your work that saves you, there is no sin too great for God to forgive. I wonder if you needed to hear that. There is no sin too great for God to forgive. Why is that here? Why, why, why are these verses here? Well, Paul's quote of Psalm 32 applies to Abraham in, 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 uh, in Paul's argument here. It applies to Abraham through the link again of the word counts. Logizomai. It, it, in other words, he's saying th- this, this use of the same word in Psalm 32 that God gives to us in Genesis 15, it puts Abraham in the same boat as the rest of us. Father Abraham is in the same boat as the rest of us. He was a sinner in need of forgiveness. It also puts David in that boat. What was the occasion of David writing Psalm 32? We think that it was in response to his greatest failure. His greatest failure, which was the whole issue of adultery with Bathsheba, and the subsequent murder then of her husband in order to try to cover up the pregnancy. I mean, it was just a big mess. It was, it's the biggest sin we have recorded of David in the Old Testament. And, and this is his response to that. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He will not put it in your ledger. But instead, will put a gazillion billion in your ledger. Righteousness. See, Abraham and David and Paul were, were not only not good enough to boast before God, but they were in fact wretched enough to warrant condemnation without a shadow of a doubt. David's great sin was deserving of great judgment. Right? And yet, Psalm 32 not only shows us that God counts the sinner righteous, but also reminds us that there's no sin too big for God to forgive. That's good news. And that can be realized by faith. So again, to close out here, what is faith? Here's your application. Saving faith is believing that God is the doer of the impossible. That's what faith is. And that's what I think Paul is trying to get across to us as he rounds out the rest of this chapter. Let's look at the remaining verses. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead 
and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here's what Paul's saying. God is the God who spoke into existence the world out of nothing. God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. Impossible. Impossible. And God promised the hope against hope that Abraham would be the father of many nations, innumerable as the stars. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Impossible. Impossible. This this promise of childbirth was made again to a guy who was about a 100 years old. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Impossible. And yet, what Paul's saying is, see, Abraham believed that God was not only capable, but willing and committed to doing the impossible. And that's the definition of faith. And through that faith, God credited his account with righteousness. So what do we take away from this? Paul tells us, in verse 24 and 25. But let me finish reading verses 20 and on since we didn't read that. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Here's your application. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, this is the impossibility. This is the, I should say, the impossibly beautiful promise of God to you. And in believing it, God counts you righteous in Jesus Christ as well. See, God, God's saying, look, Abraham had nothing to, 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 to bank on except an impossible promise, and he believed it. And it was for you. My counting him righteousness for believing in my impossible work was for you so that when my son came to die on the cross for your sin and to rise again from the dead three days later to declare his victory over it, you'd go, that's impossible. And yet I believe it. And that's what, how God counts righteousness to you. No, God doesn't owe you anything. But here's the awesome truth. Because of his love for his chosen children, he gives them the full riches of his heavenly inheritance anyway. <laughs> Did you hear that? I mean, that, that is, that's amazing. God doesn't owe you anything. But 
Because of his love for his chosen children, he gives us the riches, the full riches of his inheritance anyway. And no, it doesn't matter what kinds of terrible sins you're guilty of. It doesn't even matter how consistent or how bulletproof your faith is. If you confess your sin and you believe that God is the doer of impossible things, that his son really died for you, that his son really rose again to conquer death and to give you life from the ashes of your past, God will credit your account with all of the righteousness of Jesus as well, and you will be saved from his righteous judgment against your sin. Paul says, look back to Abraham as the proof that this is true. Abraham is the great example of the pre-law gospel promise of God. Salvation was never meant to be a reward for good behavior. Never. We are justified by faith alone. Praise God for His grace and for His faithful work of salvation for us. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this simple prayer this morning that You'd, you'd help us to believe what we've just been told. Help us to believe. Because it's the most important thing we could ever do. It's transferring that trust from ourselves to You. We are, we are weary people when we're constantly trying to figure out how to prove ourselves. How to earn Your favor. How to, how to do enough things to, to, to get to the judgment seat. To get to the gates of heaven one day and, and have that scale just, just tip in our favor because we did enough. And I think we do that, God, because we've forgotten. We've, we've, we've somehow believed along the way that, that the law, the stuff you do preceded the gospel, that the gospel only came along because we couldn't, we just really couldn't do enough. But help us to believe that that was never your intent. It was always from the beginning, trusting you to do the impossible. Being declared righteous, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, and that you just you just give it to us when we believe that you can. Help us to, to live in, in that reality, Lord. Help us to believe that you're the God who does the impossible. And help us to have great joy as a result of that. Help us to have great freedom as a result of that. Free us up to, to certainly to live in light of the reality of the gospel and the renewal of our hearts. Help us to keep the law. Help us to do right. Help us to live justly. Help us, help us to reflect righteousness. But please, God, help us to believe that, that we can do that only because we've been declared as such, not because we earned it. And in that, Lord, help us to be, help us to be people who proclaim in a world that's so bent on self-trust that there's a better way and there's a God who saves failures like us. That there's a God who does the impossible for us. And that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Thank you for the great truth of the gospel. Thank you that your love for us doesn't depend on our love for you, but rather wholly on your love for us. We are blessed. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.